at the end of the book of Mosiah, we run into Nahor, which is going to bring us to an interesting question of how do you get a bunch of really good church people to do the wrong thing for all the wrong reasons? This is uh, the philosophy of Nahor and the philosophy of priestcraft. And we're going to take a look at this and answer an important question of what's, you know, what might be the opposite of uh, priestcraft? Uh, if we are not doing priestcraft, what are we doing? And what exactly is so wrong with priestcraft when it sounds good in a lot of different levels until you actually see it? So we're about to listen to the marketing strategy of Nahor and how eventually it did bring down the entire Nephite nation. Thanks for coming. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get? in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. And we will begin uh, today's class. This is kind of fun. Um, we are now rolling through the end of Mosiah. Someone asked me the other day what, what the topic that we were teaching on. I said, Book of Mormon. And they're like, oh. And I said, and we started in First Nephi in January. <laughs> and, and here we are towards the end of a year. And we're finally breaking into Alma. That's, that's nice. That's, that's as it should be, I think. Uh, we just don't want to go too fast on this. So let, let's just let's go back and uh, review kind of what gets us here. But before we actually look at it, I want, to, I want to set this up with a question. This is actually one of those age-old church questions that we tend to ask from time to time. Where the one where we don't really have an answer, all we can do is speculate and guess. So here, here's, my, here's my initial question. In the pre-mortal life, we lived with our heavenly parents and we heard Jesus speak. Okay? We then endorsed the plan of eternal happiness, which we greeted with by shouting for joy. Okay? So the question has always been, I'd like to get your thoughts on that, why, oh why, oh why, would then a large number of us use our newly found agency to then follow Lucifer? Because, I mean, we would have, we were there, we're feeling it, we're experiencing it, we're hearing Jesus. Why, oh why, oh why, would anybody in numbers larger than one <laughs> then choose to follow? So your question has a, an assumption that's not accurate. Okay. It says, even knowing what we know, knew. And, and what we knew isn't what we know. 
So because part of the plan was for us to uh, gain moral agency, sure. at the same time there was a part of the plan that required us to uh, live by faith rather than by knowledge. Sure. But even in that experience, but, but even, even there saying we're going to follow something that is going to... We know there was enough of a war there to say there's enough to... This is a coup. This isn't a choice between two plans. This is, here's the plan of happiness. You can support it or you can tend to overthrow it. And all the glory is going to go to Lucifer. Okay? So again, in any setting, given whatever little bit of knowledge or a lot, I think that's a good point... Why would anybody follow Lucifer in the first place? He had a great plan. Well, and it would look like a great plan. Got it. Okay. So in any large group of people or whatever, there that is kind of a random group. You've got a certain percentage of those people that would prefer to be instructed, directed, commanded as opposed to a different group of those people who are ready to step up, take responsibility, and act for the good without being commanded. Sure. And the ones who seek, I'll just call it bondage, the ones who seek bondage like the plan better of just tell us what we have to do, don't make us, don't make us work this out on our own. That we're going to want, we're going to choose bondage over agency? That's a real good possibility, yeah? I think they chose fear over faith that Jesus could actually save them. You think fear played a role in that decision? I'm afraid that I... That I can't do that. Ah, that I, I may not be capable of. I'd say that's a possibility, yeah? It seems to me that the longer he would lose her was angry, the more obvious it was that he was evil. Yeah. The, the, the anger and the spite and the retaliation, just like the Lord warns us not to have those feelings. I think that made him more and more, more hateful. So maybe he wasn't obviously yeah. that way to start with. You know, it's funny, as a therapist, I, I, I even go back farther than that. I, I, I take a look at that first and say, okay, if this was Lucifer, son of the morning, Probably one of, maybe there was a small group of the sons of the morning, you know, almost like. But this is a really bright, intelligent, powerful, inspired guy that has been by, there's, he knows Jehovah, he knows Heavenly Father and everything. At what point does that switch? At what point does he go from... You know, and was it before the, you know, send me and he gets turned down? I mean, it would be easy in our mortal understanding to go, well, he was just ticked off, he didn't get picked. <laughs> you know, as opposed to there is a moment because his goal was to overthrow the plan and to, and to supplant the glory of the Father. And that means that he has to go against it and he's got to be intelligent enough to the level that they would have in the pre-mortal life, right, to go... Well, this won't this won't go well, but I think it might if you know. At what point it drives him to actually be able to make that kind of decision? Yeah, he makes his plan sound easy because uh, you could, uh, the plan we're doing now. Yeah, it's hard. It's a tough one. It's, it's hard if 
times and mean things happen to you and you get your feelings hurt and you may be in danger, I'll, do, I'll take care of all of that. Yeah, but the funny thing is, Joan, we didn't even know that there. The, the funny thing is, I, I love the, 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 the temple presentations used to be pretty good about saying, you know, you get that look in the, in the videos of, you know, if you do this, you will die. And they look at each other like, die? I, I think that's a bad thing. We've never, we've never seen die. We can't comprehend die. But okay, I guess die happens. Wow. I, well, he's very convincing. He's very good. So part of it is, is how well he articulates his plan. Okay, yeah. Well, Lucifer didn't, and we didn't know the mind of God. We knew what was adequate. God's, God teaches us the right amount for us to be able to make informed decisions at the step that we're facing. Given, given the level of knowledge and understanding that we have. Given, given what we have. And so Lucifer didn't understand the plan. He didn't understand the calculus. Uh-huh. Is God has always had the power to put everyone in heaven. He didn't need to give anybody a test. But if he did that, he had the wisdom to recognize that yeah. the celestial kingdom wouldn't be like it is. Right. It would have wicked, rotten people in it. And that's not what the celestial kingdom No. And, and even at this point, we understand better than we did because of our whole experience with mortality and opposition that we hadn't had there. Yeah? I think he is a master narcissist. And he, <laughs> you think he's the first narcissist? He manipulated everyone to follow him. Well, he did. And, and so part of, and, and I think that, that's true, and so part of what I want to demonstrate today is what does that argument sound like? Yeah. What, what did it work? Because it, because it works again, and those that are inspired by Lucifer are going to use the same arguments like President Benson said, the war in heaven has never ended. You know, it keeps on going. So that means that the arguments on both sides of the argument continue to be used. And, and there are times, the Book of Mormon really fleshes out for us a number of times. You get to hear some of the arguments that have progressed to this side of the veil because Lucifer's still using his arguments from before. And you see people still being swayed by the same arguments. Okay, and the book again. The Book of Mormon paints that really nicely. Yeah. So there's also a division between people who seek to gain power by torture and intimidation, and those who seek to gain power by persuasion. Yeah. By love. And when you've got the people who are trying to get gain power by torture and persuasion and fear and intimidation. They just can't reconcile themselves with this other planet. No, that's, that's not how it works. Right. Uh, and, and you're going to see this play out in, uh, in the battle over Nahor. Yeah. It doesn't work for them because nobody loves them. <laughs> yeah. so, so we just force it. Yeah. The uh, other question was, will Christ actually come through and make his sacrifice? And can you depend on Christ? Are you willing to? Yeah, and has that and has that fear or that question mark continued from the pre-mortal life to now? Yes. Yeah, I think it has. It it it, uh, it continues. That's why I say it's the same it's the same deal. You're gonna so, so in some ways we don't know. We have limited inform, information about what happened in the war in heaven and the pre-mortal life and the arguments on both sides. 
However, if you, you can begin to hear by listening to his surrogates some of the arguments. You, you see it kind of fleshed out. And again, I think the Book of Mormon does that better than anybody else. Okay, yeah, Brent? Yeah. They drift away from our Father Heaven's plan because people that are trying to follow it are doing rather poor job. There must be a better way. You know, well, and in some ways, I think, you know, we talked about how persuasive he is, the original narcissist. And what we're going to find is some people follow a charismatic person, they're, they're just blindly following a cult leader kind of thing. And then in some cases, they're, they're following an idea. And they will follow that idea. But it's got to speak to them in some way so that there's an advantage to go a different direction than what everybody else is. Now, I get it that we have a certain amount of people in, our, in every class and every setting we go to that are just contrarians. If everybody's going right, they'll go left. My job is to be the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Whether I believe it or not, I just have to be smarter by going left because everybody else went right. So they just tend to be contrarians. Okay? Uh, but there are also people, like I say, that I think we're going to follow. Very persuasive people we were talking about. They're, they're going to follow a, a good argument that sounds better than mine. In some cases, it's an idea that sounds better than where I'm planning on going. Yeah? The, the third of the host of heaven. Are they done? Do we get repentance here? Are they going to have another chance? <laughs> uh, I don't think you do. I do have an answer. You can fire away. God is going to do what's right. That is the answer. Thank you. <laughs> we don't know. In the same way as, uh, is Judas Iscariot really going to hell? The answer is, uh, yeah, if he belongs there. Good answer. Yeah, yeah. And what will it look like in the long run? And, and I, I love the fact that sometimes th th this is a oh boy. Uh, this is maybe going to be where we end up. In this church, we have thrived for decades on certainty. We want, you know, and uncertainty we're not very comfortable with. And yet faith and having faith relies a lot on not knowing, but moving in a, a, sense, a belief moving forward. But man, we love certainty. We, want, uh, 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 uh. But we can have certainty. We can have certainty that God will always do. Yeah, God will provide. He will do the right thing. You can't have certainty on what the right thing is when your mind doesn't come Yeah, and it's not going to let anything else in. We had a, we had a guy in our, in our testimony meeting yesterday uh, and I, you know, and he got up and, and he's, he's struggling with a number of things. And, and he said at the end, he says, can I just boil my testimony down to one thing? He says, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Walked off. <laughs> and there was in the front line going, yeah, <laughs> that's it exactly. Yeah. Back in the beginning, you asked a question. Uh, it seems to me that at the time, there was a decision to be made of who's more powerful than somebody else. And there were people that started the politics of power. Yeah, and the politics of power does enter into this, isn't it? I'm going to go where the power is. And I think that's one of those persuasive arguments. Uh, I, I think you're right. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at this then. 
Um, with that said, um, in Mosiah 29, here's the, the interesting thing about this moment is, uh, and Mormon has again, we've talked about this, Mormon so carefully crafted the book of Mosiah. And we're going to get, so the book of Mosiah, Mosiah 1, 2, and 3, and 4, is talking about who? Righteous King Benjamin. And he's putting all of the kind of the Nephite constitution in place of how we take care of one another, what it looks like. And so we get all of this wonderful thing of King Benjamin. Okay? Yeah, he is. And so we're learning about how wonderful, and it says that the people loved King Benjamin. He's a very beloved, equitable, worked with his own hands, didn't put anybody in prison, contrary to the law of Moses. You know, he seems to have modified that just a little. So we have this wonderful King Benjamin. And then we go from wonderful King Benjamin to who? Uh, then we're going we're gonna to dive into Abinadi and Abinadi's preaching to who? King Noah. King Noah. So now we're going to go from King Benjamin oh, to King Noah. You know, bring on the Darth Vader music. <laughs> okay, and then after everything that's gone on, we get everybody together, and they go, okay, now we need another king, and, and King Mosiah says what? No. I just don't think kings are a good idea. You know, bad kings can lead you bad. Good kings are great if you can get them. But let's go from, let's change the affairs of the nation to go from kings to what? Judges, okay? Now, the funny thing is, this just goes opposite of what Israel did. Israel went from judges early on to then what did they want? Kings. We want kings. Like everybody, like everybody else. Egypt has a pharaoh. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's there. Uh, so the people around us have got kings, so we're going to go from judges to kings. And Mosiah, in a sense, is going to say, we've done kings, that doesn't turn out well, let's go to judges. Because I believe uh, that the vast majority of the people will choose right. And by the way, if they ever choose wrong, then now they're going to call, who, whose fault is it? If, if we can all vote, and we all have a voice, and things go bad, now it's our fault. Party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's thems. Okay, they just didn't buy, vote my way. Okay, so a, after after his big speech, they they relinquished their desire for a king, um, and they became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance. I realize that there are some factions that want to say everybody should be equal because we made it equal versus everybody has an equal opportunity, an equal chance through all the land. Yea, and, and as a result of that, though, every man needs to do what? They need to be a willingness to answer for our own sins. We need to be accountable. We can't blame the king. We got to be accountable for our own own, own kind of thing. So, um, now, 
Isn't it? So, so that's kind of where we are. So then they vote, and they, and they and that you're going to have a system of judges, and there's going to be the chief judge who's going to be who? Alma. Alma. Here we go. Okay. So Alma's dad dies. King Mosiah dies. Uh, now it's it's up to uh, Alma. Now here's so here's so this is Mosiah 29, and and it's. And, and originally, in if you look at the original transcript of the translation of the Book of Mormon, uh, Orson Pratt put most of these chapters in place in, in dividing things up where he thought they should be. This is the, this, the section between Mosiah 29 and Alma 1 was not originally two chapters. It just flowed. It was, it was part of a bigger section, okay? Orson Pratt put the line between... Messiah 29 now what? So really, in a sense, we're going to go right from Messiah 29. We're going to flow right into Alma 1, which would really be like the next verse. And with that freedom, with that in, uh, comes the ability with Messiah gone, with uh, Alma gone. Now people can step up, kind of step into the breach, if you will. And now we're going to get Nahor. And Nahor doesn't hang around for very long, but his influence is a shadow that goes all the way to the end of the Book of Mormon. It came to pass that Nahor did teach a number of things, we'll, we'll talk about them in a sec, these things so much that many did believe on his words, even so that they began to support him and give him money. Ah, that's interesting. Um, because they, they like... They like what he's saying. Uh, it's like in the old days of the uh, of uh, the the Greeks, and even into the Roman Empire, where you had the sophists, and the sophists were really good at going from town to town, and people like what they had to say. Uh, it was kind of like the ancient TED talks. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna listen to these guys because we kind of like what this guy's saying. So we're gonna support him with money, and we like and and we like our guy more than you like your guy. Because our guy is smarter, or our guy is more intelligent, and we're gonna we're gonna pay for that. Okay. He said, "Okay, keep going. There's where we're going, right?" Uh, it does it does tickle our ears. Yeah. So it's interesting to me because I don't believe there was anything really in Joseph Smith's era time frame where the profession of Nebor existed. Yeah. That he would know about it and put it in the Book of Mormon, but certainly we have churches today that profess. Yeah. I think probably the closest that they got, some of those some of those itinerant traveling preachers at the time, like the burned out district in upper New York when they were trying to take everybody who had left their, their planted churches in New England and they'd gone out to the wilds of upstate New York and Ohio and stuff like that. Sometimes those guys bordered on it a little bit but not to the extent that, that we're talking about. Okay, they were they were out trying to do their tent revivals to capture people for Jesus and bring them back. Okay, uh, but but you're right. This is really a concept that is outside of Joseph's experience. Um, one of those little things that says Joseph just wouldn't have known this, but here it is. And we look at it now and go, well, now if we were writing a book, we'd put it in there. Well, in 1828, who knew? But they begin to support him and give him money. 
And it says, and he, as he's getting that money, he began to be lifted up in the pride of his heart. So however he started, for whatever purpose he started, this was really working. And now that there aren't kings telling us what to do, now there are judges, hey, I can really kind of say whatever I want. I'm not going to get in trouble unless I try and beat it out of them with a sword. Other than that, I'm, I'm in a pretty good place. And he began to be lifted up in the pride of his heart and to wear <coughs> costly apparel. Um, j just, just a side note. I tried to do a little side study this week on costly apparel. Uh -huh. Whew, man, it is all through and through the Book of Mormon. Uh, designer clothes and, you know, if this is, if this is where uh, most of us think probably down in Mesoamerica or something like that, and you look at the gold, costly apparel that they, they could produce down there. But man, Mormon points it out time after time after time after time, that anytime you're watching costly apparel, and they're going to say, hey, we had good clothes. We had fine twine linens. We got good stuff. Yeah, but when it goes to costly apparel, that's one of those signs. That's a signal. Uh, that something's happening, okay? Going to wear costly apparel. And now, was Nahor just preaching to be preaching? No, now what's happening? They're hearing him. They're listening to him. They're giving him money. And the next thing he's going to do is establish what? An alternative church. He's not just a way of, of doing this. It's an alternative church. So think about what's happening. That means if uh, regardless of what King Benjamin might have said and done, regardless of what Alma might have said or done, I'm going to create a church that is different and it's based on a different set of principles. Now, the question is, what principles? Because I don't think, again, I don't think Lucifer's in the pre-existence going, I'm going to be unrighteous. He's going to have some principles that sound really good enough to draw people in. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so so let me let me talk about one of them. There must have been a number of selling points, but when we look at it through modern present-day eyes, let me tell you what I think is a big one, and I think it resonates today. One of Nahor's big selling points was. He also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at, at the last day, kind of regardless of what they do. But here it is. And that they need not fear nor tremble, but they might lift up their heads and rejoice. Don't fear. Now we would say, well, we say the same thing. Don't, you know, don't fear. Okay. Um, but let, let me give you a couple of examples and, and then let me get your, your feedback on this. This idea that they need not fear and tremble. Uh, in the, in the, the, the days of Apostle Paul, Apostle, the Apostle Paul would walk into Corinth or Ephesus or Thessalonica and, and he would walk into a synagogue. Now in a, a synagogue, let's say in Corinth, there would be actually three groups of people. There are your Orthodox Jews. 
There are your proselytes, these guys that are studying to become Jews. And then there was a third group. And it's interesting what they were called. Anybody know? Let me go, let me go Acts 13. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you that fear God. The third group was called the God-fearers. Now a God-fearer, uh, in our understanding, was simply this. A God-fearer was, was a Gentile in Corinth, in Ephesus, wherever. Okay, And it might make some sense to hang with the Jews. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're a businessman and you're selling stuff back and forth with the Jews, it might, it might make sense to hang with it. Or if, if you're kind of maybe done with the imperial cult and Zeus and all that, and this might be kind of interesting, you might in turn, you're not going to become a Jew, but you'll worship with the Jews. And that, those people were called God-fearers. God fears. Now, hang on to that idea for just a second. Because I'm not about to go into yet what they felt like it meant to fear God. And I realize that we have our modern day understanding of what fearing God is. But let's look it through their eyes. Okay. Um, can't remember if I put this in here. No, I didn't. Okay, so let me mention one other group of God fears. Uh, and, and then I want to get your opinion on this. Here's another group of God fears. When, when uh, the Puritans were in England and they were being put down by the Church of England and they had an opportunity to go out to this new country that had just been discovered and hop on the boat and, and they're going to travel to this new world uh, and, and we know those group of people as pilgrims. And, and religiously they were the Puritans. Okay? Now, the Puritans saw themselves as God-fearers. I fear God. Now, when, I, I actually looked on a couple of Puritan sites, and what they, what they said was, and what they believed back then was, the way to have joy in God is to fear God. You go, well, what, what does that mean? Well, for them... What does it mean to be to receive joy and love from God? To be reprimanded. Almost. I think fear and reverence is, is more along the lines. I know you're thinking, but you're thinking with a modern brain. So this is taking me back to Proverbs, where it says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." Yes. Okay. Then you get on wisdom's path, and wisdom's path. Huh. So it makes sense, right? It, it, it would make sense. So here, so here's what it meant to have joy as a Puritan. Joy means you kept all the commandments. And I have joy because God is now approving of me. I kept all the commandments. And so I can have joy and confidence and comfort that I'm doing the right stuff. Now, where's, so that's joy. So where's the problem with that? We're mortal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what happens if we don't? 
What happens if we're not sure? What happens if there's a gray area? What happens if we mortalize things and we make a mistake? Then what? Then we've gone out of God's pleasure and approval to what? Into condemnation. Now we're on this side. So the way to have joy is to keep every single commandment all the time and, and the way to not get God's pleasure is to make one mistake. Even one just takes you right out of that thing. So what happens if, if you're doing everything because I am, I am like slavishly making sure and then what happens if one of your kids mess up? You have to disapprove of them like that. Yeah. You know, with lightning and sound. You know, in other words, I'm going wait a minute, what if it's my neighbor? <laughs> you know, I'm keeping the commandments and me and my house, we will keep the Lord, and on your side, you're going to hell. <laughs> Sorry. Whether it's my kids, the neighbors, what if it's somebody else in church, in your congregation? What do you do? You've got to shun them. You do. And, and, you know, and in some cases, you might have to beat them. You might have to, but certainly shun them. And I think that's where kind of the, the roots for sometimes the idea of excommunication in its harshest form. Do you know in our church, by the way, do you know that they used to, I don't know if you guys that, that have a little more snow on the dome here, were you ever in a church situation and a priesthood meeting where they said, we are now going to dismiss all of the Aaronic priesthood? The Aaronic priesthood would then file out, and then what would they say? We just need you to know that Brother So-and-so has been excommunicated. Okay? I saw a clipping from 1942, something like that, where it was actually listed in the, in the Deseret News. Here's a list of all the people that were excommunicated <laughs> for, for this last month. And it, gave, and it had their town name, right? <laughs> oh, man. Before or after the list for people who were soliciting prostitutes? Yeah, you, you, I think it'd be, but, but, it, but can you see where some of the, so, some of like the, the uh, our our Puritan footing started to enter, and sometimes I think even into church culture, where it's like we're going to be we're caught in that thing. And so, so can you see why it is that sometimes th there would be a tendency, like with a Puritan or somebody like that, or a, mu a much more strict church, to say, "I'm in favor with God, and He loves me as long as I'm doing everything right." But the minute that I step out, or the minute that you step out, or the minute that my kids step out, then what? Now I'm facing the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, the anger of God. And he's going to shun me. He's going to be mad at me. He's going to be angry. I didn't please him. I'm not supposed to have any joy. You're not supposed to have any joy. You're, play, you're drinking and smoking. You're having way too much fun. It's not supposed to work that way. You're supposed to be only the completely righteous or happy. The unrighteous should be miserable. And dang, they look like they're having a good time. That's what? That's not what? They don't know the rules. 
if they knew that, what if they were in the church and then they just wanted to sin? So now you're supposed to be miserable because you left the church so you could sin, but you seem to be having a good time. But you'll, but ultimately, ultimately, God will get you. There will be vengeance and anger and will get you ultimately. We could do that. We could, we could actually assist in God's anger and vengeance. You know, look at how, look at the letter from, from uh, Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, section 121. He's hurting. His people are being, are being uh, uh, cast out of far west and are being beaten and raped and robbed and, and, and all that. And they're streaming across. I mean, it's a horrible situation. And Joseph is writing from Liberty Jail saying, where are you? Where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? And then what he's hearing is, vengeance is mine. Oh good, you, they'll get theirs. And then I've got, you know, and then you'll read people that says, I was there, I, you know, I saw in Missouri during, during the Civil War, independence was, you know, burned and raised to the ground, I mean, it's like God's vengeance is, and we want an angry God. So let, let, me t let me take it one step farther. If I've got anybody, um, you, you guys are parents. We're not angry. <laughs> You're not angry yet? <laughs> okay, but Mike, let, let's, let's say that, I, that you were angry enough that your kids did some things that you didn't approve of. Oh, we know that one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, what's going to happen is not only are you going to be angry at them, but you're going to say to them, if you do this, I'm going to curse you. And you know what? I'm not just going to curse you. I'm going to curse your kids. And I'm going to curse their kids. And I'm going to curse them. For four generations, I'm going to, because of what you did, I'm going to extend that condemnation for four generations. I am so mad. I'm, you know... <laughs> 50 years later, I'm not over it yet. I'm still angry at what you did, and so your kids are going to pay. Okay? <laughs> How long would it take you guys to love your kids and not continue to... Probably not 50. Yeah, probably not 50. Maybe <laughs> 49. <laughs> it's, it's untenable. We wouldn't do it... So here's my point. We wouldn't do it as mortal parents. In our imperfectness as parents, we don't, we're not looking for anger and lightning bolts. We don't, we don't, we don't. But isn't it interesting that sometimes in our philosophy we have said, God will do it. The perfect parent will actually do this. Well, we wouldn't do it, but that doesn't mean other people would do it. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of people that would do it. Oh, there is. And they will handle those things. And again, sometimes, I guess that's my point, is that sometimes people get caught up in this stuff, and, and so often in, especially in Christianity, with the influence of the Middle Ages the, and, and tradition, we wor they worship a God that you are constantly afraid is going to be angry at you because of, of the least thing that happens. We're just... Does that make sense? Okay, now, let me ask you this. If I said to you, I know, I know this is the way you worship. 
And I know that you're always afraid of being, making God angry. And he's going to strike you down. That's really where your cancer, polio, or something comes from, is God's vengeance on you. I, I, that's a dumb God. I have a God that will love you. And, and so, you know what? You don't have to ever be worried or f afraid again, ever. What a pretty persuasive... If you, will, if you will pay me money and come to my church... In my church, we don't worry about angry gods. In my church, it's just a loving God that doesn't care what you do. So lift up your head and be happy all the time. Yeah, I know you've done a bunch of stuff you shouldn't, but that's okay. Is that a pretty good argument? It worked for Nahor. Lift up your head. Don't be afraid. That Nephite God... Remember when, if we go back and read King, King Benjamin's address, there's going to be a judgment day, and you're going to stand before the judgment God, and you're either going to go to heaven or hell. And you may not know until that moment when you get exactly to the judgment day. So that means as you're getting older, or you do things that you shouldn't, the, the, the day of judgment is a day that you would fear, fear and dread. As opposed to President uh, Elder Uchtdorf, Who's saying the day of judgment will be a day of happiness and joy? We'll go, well, how can it be happiness or joy? I'm about to find out my eternal reward. They're going to re read the ledger list. Yeah. So I'm going to freak out enough, you know, and then do I believe Jesus will handle it? I don't know. I'm working on that part. But it's still a day to, so I spend my entire life fearing. Does that feel okay? That's not, by the way, that's not our gospel. It really is not our gospel. Yeah. It helps me understand, though, because I get so frustrated with that shunning mentality or that condemning and thought mentality of judging others. Mm -hmm. um, because over and over, like, that is the antithesis of being Christ like. Yes. To judge or condemn my God is to love. Yeah. That's where I'm in. And, um, and leave all of that stuff to the Savior. Yeah. But it helps me understand why. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to save you by shunning you because that will shake you up. If I can make you pain enough or hurt enough, you'll come back. Okay? Which has never really worked. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of what we're here is to learn to love. I mean, it is. So when someone misbehaves, we should still love them and not condemn them. But you need to take it a step further and not rejoice in sure. misfortunes. Not say, this is God punishing them. You know, and to rejoice in, if it's someone that gets cancer or has uh, their burgers go out in the middle of the winter. Uh -huh. Didn't pay your tithing. Yeah. You know, I mean, but to still love them and not condemn them because that's not your job. No, our job is our job is to love, and, and we're always afraid if I if I love them, then maybe I'm I'm accepting all of their behavior. No, our our job is just loving and providing the softest place possible if they as they're going through their grief process or whatever it is that they're going to go through in their life, and not celebrate when they have hard times. Yeah, I think a lot of people who want this vengeance for other people, or they think that somehow they're not getting the right end of the deal because this other person. Yeah. 
They're not really seeing what's going on. They, they think, okay, I can go to the temple whenever I want, even if it's open, because I have a temple recommend, because I have made certain choices. Sure, right. I can go to church and feel the spirit. I'm not a person who can't go into an LDS church and feel uncomfortable. I can go to any church and feel comfortable. I see, I've seen this over and over in my own family and in some of my callings at funerals and things like that. People who were active at one time or brought up in the church are so uncomfortable to be in the church for their relative's funeral. I have seen this over Yeah, it, it can happen. And don't tell me that they've got it okay because <laughs> they don't. They are have put these things upon themselves and they are miserable. Sure. I mean, so they don't have it. What you think? And if you have to have a stimulant to feel joy, you don't really have joy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think a, a monster drink is a re, is it's a, not there. Yeah. Okay. So they don't have anything. <laughs> there is one other element that comes here, and, and I think we have to we have to be so careful about this, uh, and that is that um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, on our, on our flight after Thanksgiving, our flight back from Salt Lake to, to Dallas, uh, I get a, I, I'm sitting there and, and from the, the gate thing I hear, um, can passenger uh, Hinkley, Kevin Hinkley, please come to the, oh, okay. <laughs> so, I know, right? <laughs> so so I, I go up there and the guy says, um, I said, I'm Kevin Hinckley. Oh, oh, oh. You're a gold member, <laughs> which means you at, we can upgrade you if you'd like. But he said, the problem is there's only one seat. <laughs> and I said, well, that won't go over well with my wife. <laughs> and I says, thank you, thank you for the offer, but I'm, I'm okay. Um, and then he, he says, okay. He said, you have to talk to the rest of your parties. I said, no, it's only my wife. That won't work. Okay. So I go back and sit down. He comes back another time, and he goes, um, I still just have the one, but it's still available to you if you want it. And I said, really, thank you. I appreciate that. But, you know, I will, I will go with the peasants in the back of the plane. <laughs> I didn't say that. I was thinking that. Okay. So Cindy and I are checking on, checking the boarding pass. We're walking there. He comes up again. He says, you know what? For the two of you, I can actually upgrade you a little closer up in the cabin. <laughs> I said, both of us? And he says, yeah, yeah. He says, that way you don't have to be all the way to the back of the bus. And I said, okay. <laughs> we, we, me, and, me and my wife, we will take that offer. <laughs> and, and so we went up and it was like we sat there and, wow, there's more leg room here. The, the, it, things are better here than they are at the back of the bus. You know, and the, there's that part of me that goes, oh, peasants, you know, these guys <laughs> back, back over here. There is, there's a certain amount of, you know, when you get on the, generally our seats are like the last five or six at the back of the plane, right? And you walk past the people in front who are, all, who are already getting glass glasses and they're getting, you know, china plates and they're already starting to eat and do their stuff. And, you know, we like being invited to those kind of things because there's an element of pride. And it's this pride thing that I, I've mentioned a number of times before. Uh, dear St. Augustine, 
who's going to say, part of the enjoyment of being in heaven is watching those suffering in hell. <laughs> wow, that's a, you know, the, heaven wouldn't be heaven unless you can see other people suffering. No, no, St. Augustine. I, I can show you the actual quote. Yeah. Uh, and, and Calvin loved that quote, by the way. Um, so I, I think we can be in that position to say, part of I knowing that I'm living that Puritan, I'm, I, I have my temple recommend, I'm doing all the right things, is this, it's, it's a little tough to not be prideful and say, <clears throat> and you're not. <laughs> I've got my food storage. You don't. <laughs> yes. We're going we, to... So, so when we talk about... Uh, when, when we're going to go back to... Um, go all the way back here to... You, you need a graphic that varies the costly apparel and the don't fear. <laughs> No, no, no fear on the on the right. on the polo shirt. Yeah. So, so I think most of us know that food storage is not the oil in the land. Yes. Unless you're a member of a certain small group within the church that's waiting to go out to the tent cities in Las Vegas, who shall remain nameless. Vow. <coughs> um, so, so again. Part of what he's selling, what Nahor is selling, he's also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day and they need not fear and tremble. Okay? I think that would be a strong selling point. A, that you don't have to be scared, and two, uh, that God's going to save everybody, so no matter what you do is okay. And three, you can dress great. <laughs> In fact, you'll dress great and your clothes will be better than your neighbor's. There is some, from the Nahor marketing program, this is, there's some really strong selling points. They're good bullet points on their PowerPoint. The difference between costly apparel and quality apparel. This just promises that you'll pay a lot for it. <laughs> yes, yeah, but it'll look really, really good. It doesn't even say that. It'll look really high. Ah. Okay. So. He said they establish a church after this manner of preaching, uh, verse six, um, and then he's going to enforce it with the sword because sometimes now, if, if your livelihood depends on attacking the church and trying to bring the church down, and somebody else is going to be persuasive, it might you might have a bit of a, an argument going on here, which they did, and here comes what's that? For, for Nahorism? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I think we can even now. <laughs> but I won't even go there. Um, begin to establish a church after the manner of his preaching. Then he's going to argue with Gideon. We know these. Um, so verse 12. Alma says unto him, Behold, this is the first time that priestcraft has been introduced among this people. And behold, thou art not only guilty of priestcraft, but thou hast endeavored to enforce it by the sword. And were priestcraft to be enforced among this people, it would prove to be their entire destruction. Did that turn out to be prophetic? It was. Okay. So, so let me ask, 
one other thing here then. Given everything that we've just said, okay? If priestcraft, okay. Second Nephi 26, all the way back there, he's going to command that there be no priestcraft. Then he's going to define it. What is priestcraft? Well, priestcraft are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may gain and and pray have that they may get gain and praise of the world, but seek not the welfare of Zion. Okay. So here's my question: What is the opposite of priestcraft? I used to always say priesthood, and to a certain extent, that's true. But what, Brent, you're. I, I would classify priestcraft as selfishness, and the opposite is unselfishness. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you would say selfishness and unselfishness. So it is about me. So what's the opposite of that? It's what. Humility, service. service. Oh, we're hitting. We're getting there. Okay. Uh, because uh, both Alma and Nephi will give us the answer to what is the opposite of priestcraft. If you don't practice priestcraft, what do you do? Oh, there you go. It's charity. Okay. Behold. The Lord has forbidden this thing, priestcraft. Therefore, the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity. Which charity is love? The service, the unselfishness, everything you guys were just describing. Isn't it interesting that, that when we talk about priestcraft, that which, which charity is love, and except that they should have charity, they were nothing. Therefore, they would, uh, if they have... If they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. So in a, in a sense, priestcraft then becomes the, is everything that is not charity, everything that is not uh, built on, and especially that bottom line, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. Hmm? That's right. They're not. They're, they're calling them, they're calling each one of us what? Laborers. Laborers. Isn't that cool? <laughs> okay, yeah? So I just love a quote by Joseph Smith about the cloak of charity. Yeah. Yes, I love that one. And if we have no accusers, we all go into heaven together. Isn't that... And, and, and that one, to, to be honest with you, that quote has haunted me for a long time. And, and, one, and one day I'd like to do kind of a deeper dive into it that says, 
who goes to the celestial kingdom? Basically, those without accusers. No. It's those who are not accusers. It's both. It's both. Because Joseph is going to say, if you're not accusing me, I'm not accusing you. So I think both things are true. It's about that we're going to make it when, when we are in a place with each other where I'm not accusing you and you're accusing We call that what? Zion. Yeah, but we still have outsiders who are accusing us. Yeah, and that point, and that's why we actually go when we have people that are accusing us, at some point down the road, we try and reconcile with them. Or, or we allow the Savior to reconcile. The, the, that atonement then is the recon... That's why, that's why the better word for atonement is reconciliation. That was the original word in, in Romans 5. It was reconciliation. Nobody's accusing me, and I'm not accusing you. That's, it, it's, anyway, great, great quote. Anyway, uh, yeah. I read someplace, and I read that Yes. I remember him doing that. Oh, really? I think that's fairly common for missionaries to leave most of their clothing behind when they come home from their mission. Yeah. I know that I certainly left some suits behind and, and things like that. You hope they'd kind of get passed along. But. You talk about, you think about people who make money or have all this coffee or whatever. Yeah. And then someone who actually gives you the shirt off the back. So I think that's the difference. That's one of the difference. But then they are willing to do that. And not worry about whether or not where their next shirt is going to come. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to find in here... Um, I'm not finding it right off. Maybe you guys can, can find it. Um, oh, here we go. <laughs> it was right there. Okay. So look at what happened to those that were not, that were members of the church who weren't prescribing to Nahor's priestcraft. Here's the opposite of that. They're saying, uh, and they did impart of their substance. Every man according to that which he had, to the poor, to the needy and the sick and the afflicted. And they did not wear costly apparel. <laughs> okay. Uh, yet they were neat and comely, and thus they did establish the affairs of the church. They began to have continual peace. Now, the, the irony to this is what? If I take care of the laborers in Zion, and I'm going to feed the poor and the, and the needy and the sick and the afflicted, then what happens? Verse 29. And because of the steadiness of the church, the irony is what? They become rich. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, having abundance of all things whatsoever they stood in need of abundance um, having fatlings of every kind um, a lot of carbohydrates back then uh, also abundance of grain and of gold and silver and precious things the abundance of silk and fine twine linen and all manner of as opposed to costly apparel good homely cloth okay okay yeah, they do. Yeah. That's good 
But by the way, that, that is one of the places that those that have attacked the Book of Mormon and the church go, they didn't have fine twine linen and everything. I've seen some of the Mayan, ancient Mayan cloth stuff. It's fine twine. It's really good. Okay? Um, That's absolutely true. And 30, and thus in prosperous circumstances. Now, the funny thing is, just from a sociological standpoint, why would people that are giving away their, they're taking care of the needy and the poor, why would they end up more prosperous? Seems like we should all be poor together, right? Well, maybe, maybe somehow God blessed them. It could have been a blessing. I, 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 think there's a, I think there's a simpler understanding. Yeah. The law of abundance is that when you're sharing openly, yeah. it, it, all, um, it doesn't become less. It becomes more. Whereas if you're holding back, then I don't know. So maybe there's a lot more. If, if, if I have poor in my midst, and I'm just going to simply take care of their needs then they will get through, uh, I will feed them a fish, right? And then if you teach them how to fish, blah, blah, blah. Okay? If I'm going to take care of those around, at, and remember, the, the term is, these aren't just poor people, these are laborers in Zion, right? I'm going to, as, as part of what our uh, perpetual education fund is about in the church, as part of what, it, what uh, the self-reliance classes are about, is to teach people and raise them out of their circumstance, and then they become more prosperous. Okay, so so even without the blessings of God, which I think is there, but there's more than that. It's it's we're raising them out of their circumstance. The entire society gets more prosperous. Yeah. Well, that's a foundational condition that's listed in verse 26 there, right there at the end, the purple. Yeah, thus they were all equal, and they all did labor according to his strength. All labor. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. It is. It is. And so, and I just think that's one of those things. Um, by the way, um, sometimes um, Darwin has been accused of, um, if, you read through his, if you read through his treaty thing, we've always said, Darwin just said, like, survival of the fittest. Let the, let the weak die off and the, and the strong keep surviving. It's not what he said. You actually start looking a little closer at what he said was that societies tend to take care of their weaker ones, women, children, because that helps the society propel forward. So they have to give up some of that to be a little bit more caring to one another. Okay, yeah. Um, verse 26 is Uh, this graces me with the amount that I can give, even if it's not the same amount that my husband can give. Yeah. Isn't broken by that. Yeah, so that means I'm taking into consideration what your strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, I love, um, I love uh, Paul's definition if you go back to 1 Corinthians 12, you know, where he's talking to the people in Corinth and they're struggling with who's better and who's smarter and stuff like that. 
And, and Paul, Paul's trying to say, wait, 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 wait. Not everybody's going to be the eye in the body of Christ. Some are ears. You know, and the ear can't say to the eye, I don't need you. You know, and the foot can't say to that. And, uh, and, and so one of the scholars has said, we're not, we're not a church of livers. <laughs> like we're all the same liver. <laughs> you know, we're a church where some are livers and some are eyes and some are ears. Okay. And, and so we, and, and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, but our uncomely, our unbeautiful members are given a more abundant beauty. It's a beautiful concept of saying we're not the same. We all bring our different strengths to the table. Uh, and, and part of that laboring is laboring inside our, our ability. Does that make sense? Brent? You know what? I can sit here and yeah. We have to back up and recognize the hand of the Lord in helping us in our lives. When we do what He says, He yeah. blesses us in ways that are hard to identify, hard to understand, hard to quantify. Boy, I think that's true. And I also think, by the way, that if we, the more uh, Jesus is going to say to us, how will people know that you're, that you're my disciples? that you have loved one for another. It becomes so obvious. And that when we are blessed by God, we are filled with God's love, and we are more likely then to be charitable and, and reach out and, and serve others. Um, I, I, spoke at a, I spoke at a baptism on Saturday, uh, and, uh, on, on baptism, and basically what I, was, what I, what I told, told him was... Um, I says, the, the deal here is, I, I says, before you actually get baptized, I need you to be, I need to come completely clean what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> I says, you're coming into a community, you know, and some of these people are weird. <laughs> and, and you know what? You're going to love them anyway, and they're going to love you. You'll be weird right along with us. And I said, and, and the genius of this church is it puts us in a geographical area where we're not going to go find the church where we find the people more like us. We're more likely to be in the church where there are weird people that we wouldn't associate in any other setting. And not only that, we're supposed to love them and serve them. And not only that, they'll love and serve us. And not only that, you'll serve alongside them. So just be aware what you're getting into. And, 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 as you love them and they love you, it's going to become obvious to the people in your neighborhood. Because you're going to love them as well as you love the people outside of this geographical group as well as inside. That's what, that's what happened a lot, especially like in Thessalonica with Paul, is that they were busy doing community kind of things. This little house church was involved in loving the, their neighbors in the community. And everybody went, wow, this is different. Okay, yeah. One of the things that I appreciate, I went on a trip to Philadelphia last month. Yeah. It's such a gorgeous temple. What? It's such a gorgeous temple. It is. It's yeah. a gorgeous temple. And, um, yeah, they've taken in some of the architecture of Independence Hall with the building. Yeah, it's like right across the street, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, I noticed that the person leading the music wasn't doing it in a regular way. She was just like keeping beat. <laughs> Yeah. And when it was over, she came 
down and she was in a walker and had a hard time walking. So it was probably difficult for her to get up there. And I think they called her not because she was excellent at leading the music, but because she wanted to serve and they were willing to give her that opportunity. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I, I just think that's amazing. Anyway, all right, we're, we're, we're about out of time here. Um, so, though, obviously then finally with 32, those that are part of uh, the Nahor experience, uh, those that didn't belong to the church, they get to indulge themselves in sorceries and idolatry and idleness and babblings and envies and strife. Guess what? They're wearing costly apparel. Yeah, okay, got it. Being lifted up in the pride of their own eyes. Persecuting, lying, thieving, robbing. Mormon's going to make us sure that we know everything these guys are up to. <laughs> Persecuting, lying, thieving, robbing, committing whoredoms, and murdering all manner of wickedness. Nevertheless, the law was put into force upon those who did transgress it in so much as it was possible. So a lot of these guys did it, and unless you were trying to enforce it with the sword, you can get away with it. So part of the, part of the, the blessing and the curse of freedom is that people get to do stupid things. <laughs> yeah. And they get to get caught up in their pride. As long as they stay in their lane, uh, there's no problem. So, all right. Is that, is that plenty? That's plenty. Uh, so, next week, oh yeah, let's, let's see what happens when it ends up being on a, on a larger scale. So, so uh, ne next week we'll start with uh, Alma 2 and we get to see Amlosai. Um, and get to see what happens when Nahorism gets uh, an army kind of thing. So, uh, any final comments on any of this? Good stuff, I think. So our job is to just have charity. And then we've got to flesh out exactly what is the kindest thing. Um, I love uh, the, the new book, if you haven't seen it, by Adam Miller on Original Grace. Uh, fabulous book and what he's talking about his, his definition, his, his idea of justice is that God gives us what is needed that a loving, the way a loving parent gives what's needed rather than is anxious to punish and, and to hurt and if you want a great read just some thought provoking ideas Adam Miller in this stake is just doing a fabulous job so um, I bear my testimony that, that uh, the Lord intends us to love. And loving is probably the, much harder than hedonism. <laughs> uh, but we need to be able to do it anyway. So I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.